Corinthians chapter 2. Tonight we'll be considering this chapter, and it's an important, important chapter. You'll, you'll see why from beginning to end. Paul here is working with the Corinthian Christians, explaining to them his own change of plans. Now again, Paul is defending himself against the accusations from some of the Corinthian Christians. You see, some among them were criticizing him because he changed his travel plans. And he did not come when he planned to. Paul said, well, listen, I plan to come at such and such a time. And Paul didn't. And so some people who were sort of Paul's enemies, or at least opponents among the Corinthian Christians, used this change of plans to say of Paul, well, listen, he's untrustworthy, he's unreliable. We don't need to listen to Paul at all. But Paul is going to explain to him, he has explained at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, why there were many reasons why he'd not come as planned. One of them was that he was trying to spare the Corinthian Christians. Take a look at verse 23 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. And he's making that clear. You know, it was out of kindness to you that I didn't come. And he's going to carry on the same thought beginning here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Now, Paul's most recent visit among the Corinthians was full of conflict and unpleasantness. He basically had to get in the face of some of these sinful, rebellious Corinthian Christians and correct them. And so Paul says, listen, I just determined within myself, I'm not going to have another sorrowful visit like this. I'm going to send you a letter instead and let you get things right from the letter. And then when things are better, then I'll come to you face to face. Uh, Paul also knew that uh, another visit would not be good for him. He says, listen, if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad? Paul knew that the constant conflict with the Corinthian Christians could really damage his relationship with them. You know, it seems that Paul thought it was best to give the Corinthian Christians a little bit of room and to give them space to repent and get their act together. He didn't want to be on them all the time. So with this attitude, how could another visit in person be of any real benefit? Instead, he's sending this letter. And so he says here, verse 3, he says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, Not that you should be grieved, but that you should know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Now again, Paul wisely considered that considering all the circumstances, a letter would be better than a personal visit. A letter would lay out Paul's heart, yet not give much opportunity for the deterioration of the relationship. It would give them the room to repent and get right with God again. Now, where's the letter that Paul mentions? It's important to understand that in verse 3, when he says, I wrote this very thing to you, he's not talking about the letter of 2 Corinthians. And most Bible scholars believe that he's not talking about the letter of 1 Corinthians. It seems that there was what many scholars call the sorrowful letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So does that really mean that 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians and we're missing 2 Corinthians? And what's that? I mean, is there something missing from our Bibles here? Not at all. 
Friends, let's understand something. Not every letter that Paul wrote was inspired scripture for all God's people in all ages. Now, this is a mistake that some people in the cults will try to confuse you with. Some people of aberrant Christian religions will come along and say, look, we have a book here, and it is a companion to the Bible. I'll just make one up. Let's call it the Book of Macaroni. (laughs) And here is the companion to the Bible. And I've had some of them say this to me. They say, see, your Bible is incomplete. Because Paul mentions a letter here, but it's not in the Bible. That means the Bible is incomplete, and you need the book of macaroni to fill out the rest of your Bible. Well, friends, that's nonsense. Not everything that Paul wrote was inspired scripture. What, are we going to try to dig up his laundry list, his shopping list, his, uh, you know, the, the doodles that he wrote or something? It's, it's nonsense. God preserved those letters which were inspired for all churches throughout all ages. I'm sure that Paul had a lot of good things to say to the Corinthians in the sorrowful letter. I'm sure it was exactly what God wanted the Corinthians to hear, but it isn't exactly what God wanted us to hear, so God didn't preserve the letter. But we shouldn't think that everything that Paul or the other, Bibles, other Bible writers wrote was automatically Scripture. So Paul says here in verses 3 and 4, he says, Lest when I came I should have sorrow. Paul says, listen, I'm hoping that the letter that I sent before, I wanted it to get all the painful work out of the way. Then when I visited you personally, it could be pleasant. Instead of all stressed out and full of conflict, I want you to take advantage of the opportunity I'm giving you to set things right. And then I like what he says here in verse 3. He says that I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. You know, Paul looks at the Corinthian Christians and goes, you know what, you guys should be giving me joy. You guys shouldn't be this kind of burden to me, Paul's saying. You guys shouldn't be this kind of problem. The bad conduct of the Corinthian Christians was all the more troubling considering how they should have treated the apostle who founded the church. They should have been treating Paul like a prince. But instead, they're giving this bad treatment. And Paul goes on and he says in verse 4 that it was out of much affliction and anguish of heart that he wrote to the Corinthians. Can I just let you know that Paul was not one of those guys who enjoyed confronting people. He didn't enjoy confronting the Corinthian Christians. It was hard for him to do it. And it says here that he did it with many tears. His goal was not to grieve the Corinthian Christians, but that they would know the love that he had so abundantly for them. Now, can I just tell you that it would take some maturity on the part of the Corinthian Christians to receive Paul's correction that way? Isn't it very easy for us to think that the person correcting us is our enemy? Now, do you know why it's easy for us to think that? Because sometimes they are. But you know what? Most of the time they aren't. Most of the time they're not. When that person, especially someone you know and love and the body of Christ, and they're telling you, you know, this is wrong or that's wrong, or they're criticizing you or correcting you, they're not your enemy. They're they're loving you. Just like Paul loved the Corinthian Christians, his goal was not to grieve them, but to love them. There's a remarkable chapter in one of Spurgeon's books called Lectures to My Students. And the chapter is just one of the best chapters, I think, anybody who's going into the ministry or anybody who's in the church would read, and he calls it the blind eye and the deaf ear. And in that chapter, he basically starts out by saying that he's often told his students that every minister should have one blind eye and one deaf ear. And a lot of times, that's the best eye and the best ear that you have. 
And basically, the message of the chapter is, look, you can't take everything to heart. Some things you just got to turn a blind eye to. And one of the things Spurgeon says you got to turn a blind eye to is criticism a lot of time. You can't regard the person who's criticizing you as an enemy. Spurgeon says on this, and here's a quote, he says, Where I have known that there existed a measure of disaffection to myself, I have not recognized it unless it's been forced upon me, but have, on the contrary, acted towards the opposing person with all the more courtesy and friendliness. And I've never heard any more of the matter. If I had treated the good man as an opponent, he would have done his best to take the part assigned to him and carry it out to his own credit. You know, and that's often true. If you treat your critic like they're an enemy, they'll, well, I'll fulfill the part then, and you'll get yourself into a lot of unnecessary conflict. Well, that's Paul's attitude here. He says, listen, I want you Corinthian Christians just to take it that I love you, and that's why I'm writing these things. And he says, I wrote to you with, with many tears. One Puritan commentator, John Trapp, says, St. Paul's epistles were written rather with tears than with ink. You can just see the tears all over the page as Paul was dictating this. Now, in verse 5, we get to something very interesting, and and going on, he's talking about the idea of reconciliation and forgiveness and such, and he goes on in verse 5, and he says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now, this is a very interesting portion of the letter where Paul is talking about the need for the Corinthian Christians to forgive a brother who had sinned. He's saying, listen, if anyone has caused grief, by the way, you know what I love about Paul here? He doesn't name the person. Apparently, there was some man who was in sin in the Corinthian church. And uh, Paul had recommended to the Corinthian Christians that they confront the man. Why don't we just get right to the point here? Keep your finger here. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. I don't want to talk around the issue. Let's just get right to it and help you understand exactly what's going on here. Again, keep your finger there. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Paul is saying that there was a member of the Corinthian church who was living with, in a sexually immoral way, living with his stepmother. And listen to what Paul says. He says, this is terrible. This is a scandal. And you want to know what the problem was? Was that the Corinthians weren't scandalized. Matter of fact, look at it in verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he was done this deed might be taken away from you. In other words, the Corinthian Christians were walking around saying, you know what? We're so loving here. Yeah, we know this brother's in sin. We know he's in notorious sin. We know he's playing a great big game of let's pretend, but aren't we loving receiving this brother? And Paul says, you're proud about this? You're proud that you won't confront this guy in his sin? What's going on here? And he goes on here, verse 3, for I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, considering him who has done, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's a heavy statement. And if you want a full exposition of this, I recommend to you the tape on 1 Corinthians 5 that we were in a couple months ago. 
But the bottom line is simply this. Paul was saying, you know what you need to do with this notorious sinner in your midst? You need to exclude him from the fellowship of the church. He's enjoying the comforts of the Lord's uh, people. Cast him out from the Lord's people. Let him live among the devil's people for a while. Turn him over to Satan, to the world. And so he can't play a great big game of let's pretend among God's people. Well, that's what was going on here. And so basically, Paul says, you Corinthian Christians, you, you got this notorious sinner image. You're refusing to confront it. You got to confront it. You got to speak squarely with the guy. And it's very interesting. We come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And you know what Paul has to say to them? For heaven's sakes, lighten up. Now, isn't it just like the Corinthians? From one extreme to the other. Never a place of balance. Never a place of being in the middle of what God wants to do. Either it was a blind eye and open arms to notorious sin in their midst, or it seems that they applied the prescription that Paul said, and the guy repented, and then they folded their arms saying, oh, forget it, you're not coming back to us. And Paul is probably tearing his hair out at all of this. And he's just trying to say, listen, what's going on here? Verse 6, he says, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. He says at the end of verse 5, don't be too severe. So apparently the man was put under the church's discipline, even as Paul instructed back in 1 Corinthians, and he received the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, But after receiving the punishment, the man apparently repented, but the Corinthians wouldn't let him back among the Christians. So Paul has to say, don't be too severe. The punishment's been sufficient. Forgive and comfort him. So again, it's kind of strange because on the one hand, we're glad that the Corinthian Christians did what Paul told them to do, right? That's good. But they didn't have the spiritual common sense To be able to say, well, now the man's repented, let's bring him back. Matter of fact, if you notice what he says here, look at verse 7 carefully. It says, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Let me lay this out on the line, folks. The Corinthian Christians were just as wrong in withholding forgiveness and comfort to this man once he had repented as they were in welcoming in open arms when he was in the midst of his sin. Again, they found it easy to be on either extreme and either being too lenient or too harsh. And did you see what Paul said? He told them to do more than forgive. He said, I want you to comfort him also. I think this is kind of rebuke to us where sometimes we get in that attitude of saying, well, I'll forgive, but... Paul says... Don't just forgive. Forgive and comfort. G. Campbell Morgan said, There may be a judicial forgiveness which is hard and leaves the soul always conscious of the past. Comfort takes the soul to heart and forgets. That is how God forgives, and so should we who are his children. And Morgan goes on to say, Listen, if Discipline is largely lacking in the church of today. So also is the grace of forgiving and comforting those who have done wrong and are truly repentant. How often, alas, souls have been indeed swallowed up with overmuch sorrow because of the harshness and suspicion of Christian people toward them in the view of some wrong which they have done. And Morgan goes on to say, love never slights holiness 
but holiness never slays love. And so they found it easy to turn a blind eye when the man should have been confronted, but once he was repented and should have been welcomed back, they're keeping their distance. And Paul says, no, forgive him, comfort him. And you know why it was so important? Look at verse 7, please. He says, so on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Friends, there's a real danger here in what the Corinthian Christians were doing. By withholding restoration and forgiveness from the man, they risked ruining him, causing him to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. You know there's such a thing as too much sorrow over your sin? You bet there is. Now, it's appropriate for you to grieve for your sin. Then you know what? Then you should almost take a joy in your grief. Because your grief is a good thing. Your grief over your sin shows that you have a heart tender towards the Lord. And friend, there's a such thing as too much sorrow. And sometimes Christians get trapped in it. And sorrow for sin, when it exceeds what it should be, it makes you unable to serve God with any kind of joy, with any kind of energy, and and it's sin. There's a sinful sorrow over sin. And Paul says, we've got to spare this man this. Friends, the restoring work of the church towards sinners is just as important as its rebuking work. Paul says, you've got to embrace this guy. You've got to welcome him back. One commentator I read gave a very extreme example of this. He said how in the medieval days, the, the papists, the ancient Roman Catholics, would, when a person was into the Inquisition, and when they would recant, when they would say, okay, I confess, I confess, then they would burn the person at the stake. Because they said, well, let's send him on to eternity when he's in a good place. Well, sometimes Christians have almost the same attitude. They don't open their arms wide when there is repentance. So you see the line that Paul was trying to keep the Corinthians on, off on, uh, away from either extreme, either winking at sin or pushing the person away once they had repented. Paul said, no, no, welcome him back, comfort him, forgive him. Now, this gives us an important Entry into verse 8. Let's remember the context, this whole issue of the man who had sinned and not giving occasion, not giving him occasion for too much sorrow. Then Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, do you get the point here? First of all, Paul says, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. That's what he says there in verse 8. Listen, you've got to show this man that you love him. Reaffirm it. And then he goes on to say, uh, verse 9, for I, this end I wrote you that I might put you to the test. I think it's interesting. Paul's almost thinking, listen, back in 1 Corinthians, I put you to the test to see if you would confront the man. And you did. Now I'm putting you to the test to see if you'll love the man. To show love to the repentant brother. It's kind of interesting in that verse 9, he says he wants to see if they're obedient in all things. I wonder if the Corinthians would find it easier when it came to being tough than they would when it came to being loving. I mean, which is harder for you? For some people, it's easier for them to be tough. For other people, it's easy to be loving. 
God wants us to be obedient in all things and to know which is appropriate at the right time. But Paul says, listen, I don't have anything against the guy. Verse 10, for whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Listen, let's forgive the guy because he's repented. But notice why he says it in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Paul knew that this was of special concern because Satan was looking to take advantage of our mistakes, both as a church and as individuals. It's a very interesting word there, take advantage. The original word in the Greek New Testament is used just four other times in the New Testament, and it has the idea of cheating someone out of something that belongs to them. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to cheat you out of something that belongs to them. And you know what belonged to this man in question? Forgiveness, restoration, the love and the comfort of the body of Christ. That's what belonged to him. And Satan wanted to cheat him out of it. And Paul says, listen, lest Satan should take advantage of us. We don't want Satan to take advantage. Friends, there's things that belong to you in Jesus Christ. You know, peace, joy, fellowship, a sense of forgiveness, victory in the Christian life. Those things belong to you in Jesus Christ. Is Satan taking advantage of you and taking those things away from you? Stealing those things which belong to you is your birthright in Jesus Christ? Maybe it's time for some of you tonight just to kind of put your foot down before the devil and say, I'm sorry, no more. These things belong to me. You're not going to take them away. Sometimes, well, you know, that means the circumstances have to change. No, not necessarily. God can give you those things, even in the midst of the circumstances. You notice here, verse 11, he says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You see, their failure to love the repentant man could be used as a strategy of Satan. Now, I want to look at this on a smaller scale and a larger scale. Just in the straight context that Paul's talking about it here, He's talking about withholding forgiveness from the repentant, that that's a strategy of Satan. You are playing into Satan's hands when you withhold forgiveness from a repentant person. John Calvin said of this, there is nothing more dangerous than to give Satan a chance of reducing a sinner to despair. Whenever we fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands. So friends, that's a very serious matter. But we can also look at it at the bigger scale because, you know, Satan has strategies that are a lot bigger than just that. Paul could say that we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan has specific devices or strategies that he uses against us to take advantage of us. And Paul could say something that I wonder how many of us could say. Paul could say, we're not ignorant of those devices. We're not ignorant of Satan's strategies. Satan's strategy was, first of all, against this man, right? This man who was trapped in the sin of sexual immorality, and then he repented, but now the church wasn't bringing him back. Satan had a strategy against this man, right? First, his strategy was lust. That's what he was in, the sin of sexual immorality. Then his strategy was of hopelessness. Well, now you've repented, Satan said, and look, they won't lead you back. They won't allow you back. See, you're hopeless. You're never going to be forgiven. And then Satan whispered that strategy of despair into his ear. Yes, just give it up. There's no point for you. God will never love you again. You've committed the unpardonable sin. You can see Satan's strategy against this man, can't you? 
You know, Satan had a strategy against the Corinthian church too, didn't he? First, his strategy against the Corinthian church was first to get them to tolerate evil. Well, show how loving you are by saying nothing to the man. That was his strategy. But then Paul dealt with that strongly. And well, that strategy was blown out of the water. Then Satan had another strategy. Well, you know, he repented. But did he really repent? Maybe you should keep him out for a couple years until you can see. His strategy was an undue severity against the man. You see Satan pulling behind the strings. He had a strategy against the man. He had a strategy against the Corinthian church. Might I always so say that he probably had a strategy against the Apostle Paul here too. His strategy against Apostle Paul was simply to make him so exasperated and stressed and upset with the Corinthian Christians that he lost peace and effectiveness in ministry. And I trust that Paul combated that strategy of Satan too. My friends, John Calvin defined these devices this way. He called them the artful schemes and tricks of which believers ought to be aware and will be if they allow the Spirit of God to rule in them. Friends, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to make you aware of Satan's strategy against you right now? Right now in your life, what weak point is Satan trying to exploit? Where is Satan trying to get a foothold into your life? What is his strategy against you right now? Can you say, like Paul said, that you're not ignorant of his devices? Or would you honestly, well, I don't know. Maybe you are ignorant of his devices. You shouldn't be. God will show you and give you the ability to defend yourself if you'll seek him for it. Verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, Paul here is getting back to this whole thing of his travel plans again, right? I mean, he feels like the, the you know, sort of grumpy Corinthians had to have this issue dealt with. And so he says, okay, let me talk to you about my travel plans. Let me explain to you why I didn't come. It's because a door was opened to me by the Lord. I think that's interesting that Paul said, listen, if there was an open door for him in ministry, he was going to go through it. He was interested in working where God was opening doors. And you know, the only way our work for God is going to be blessed is when it's directed service. You know, you can work very hard for the Lord, but if it's not directed service, it's not going to be fruitful, and it's not going to be much of a blessing. I think of Peter, fishing all night long. Now, do you think he worked hard? I picture Peter as a hard-working man, fishing all night long, very hard-working. At the end of the night, morning comes. What did he caught? Nothing. Then Jesus comes, and he's walking, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter coming off in the distance, and he shouts out to Peter in the boat, Hey, cast your net over there! And Peter does it, and he brings in a haul of fish so big that it fills the boat and almost sinks the boat. What a difference, huh? He had his service directed by Jesus Christ. That's when your service is blessed. And Paul said, listen, I take an open door to be direction. I know that where God sets an open door in front of me, that means there's work to be done. When he sends forth laborers, that means there's a harvest to bring in, so let's do it. So that's why I didn't come to Corinth. God opened a door for ministry here. 
But I think it's also interesting how Paul says that in verse 13 that he had no rest in his spirit because he didn't find Titus, his brother. Even though there was an open door, Paul felt he could not do all that he needed to do if he didn't have Titus there. Paul did not regard himself as a one-man show. It was not super Paul. He had a lot of trusted associates and friends around him, and you always see this. Wherever God raises up someone for ministry, he'll always raise up other people around them. And Titus was one of those people that God had raised up to be around Paul at that time. So he didn't have any rest in his spirit, but he said, this is some of the reason why I wasn't there. Now, I need to make sort of a note here before we get into verse 14. Notice in verse 13 that Paul talks about departing from Macedonia. Okay, do you got that? Now, I want you to put your finger here in, in, on this page of your Bible. And I want you to turn ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. Excuse me, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 7, 5. Where Paul says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia. You got that? In chapter 2, verse 13, he's departing from Macedonia. In chapter 7, verse 5, he's arriving in Macedonia. And in between 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, and 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, is a section that some people call the great digression. Because you know what Paul's going to do from here to there in this? He's going to talk about his ministry as an apostle. Friends, this is a thrilling section for us to get into over the next several weeks where Paul talks about what it means to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and what his own personal ministry meant. And let me tell you, it's a rich, rich passage. But I just want you to get the the feeling here that this is sort of a parenthesis. Paul is talking about his travel plans and why he didn't come immediately. And he's going to pick up the issue way back, way forward, I should say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But he's going to begin this extended section now where he talks about his own ministry as an apostle, describing it and defending it. And he opens it just in a glorious way. Look at verse 14. Matter of fact, I'm going to read verse 14 through 17, and we'll just go back and take it out piece by piece. But I just love reading this. It's so great. He says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, And among those who are perishing, to the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Again, let's remember the flow of the context here. Paul has been dealing with criticism from the Corinthian Christians saying that he's unreliable, that he's fickle, because he changed his travel plans. But he's been explaining himself and his reasons for not arriving before as previously planned. But Paul is sort of painting a bigger picture here. He says, listen, more than anything, I want you to know that I am following Jesus Christ, my general. And I want you to know that more than anything, That's why I didn't come to you, because I'm following Jesus. Jesus didn't lead me to you. You say, well, how does he get this out of here? Because you need to understand something that Paul says in verse 14 that's very exciting. Look at it. He says, now thanks be to God, right? We all understand what that means, right? Thanks be to God who 
always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, what does he mean, leads us in triumph? Paul is referring to a very specific kind of event known in the Roman world, known as the triumph. The triumph parade. You see, Paul is taking an image from the Roman world, seeing Jesus as a victorious, conquering general in a triumph parade. A Roman triumph parade was given to successful generals when they returned from their conquests. You need to understand this. This was probably the most impressive spectacle that somebody in the ancient world could ever lay their eyes on. You know, think if you would take somebody from this ancient third world, you know, very distant culture, you know, that never saw much of anything spectacular, friends. You know, they never saw a movie with special effects or anything like that. They never played, you know, the neat video games that you have now. We would consider their life. Can you imagine? Your kids come to you all the time now. I'm bored. Can you imagine if they lived back then? Of course, if they lived back then, they'd get real things to amuse themselves instead of all the false puffed up entertainment. But that's a whole nother issue. Moving on. Now, you get the idea here. You simply get the idea, my friends, that this triumph parade would have been the most impressive spectacle that somebody could have seen in the ancient world. And what a triumph parade was, was what... Let me read to you a quote from an excellent, excellent historian and commentator, William Barclay. He says, In a triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital. First came the state officials and the Senate. Then came the trumpeters. Then were carried the spoils taken from the conquered land. Then came the pictures of the conquered land and models of conquered citadels and ships. Now, do you got this scene in your mind? Think of, you know, one of those great epics, you know, from the, and you see this huge crowd and this huge parade with, you know, soldiers walking down and going down. And it's just this whole situation. It's like a, a Broadway ticker tape parade multiplied by about a thousand with a sense of feeling and triumph here. Then he goes on and he says, there followed a white bull for sacrifice which would be made. Then there walked the captive princes, leaders, and generals in chains shortly to be flung into prison and in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then came the lictors bearing their rods followed by the musicians with their lyres. Then the priests swinging their censers with the sweet-smelling incense burning in them. After that came the general himself. Finally came the army, wearing their decorations and shouting, Oh, triumph! Their cry of triumph. As the procession moved through the streets, all decorated and garlanded, amid the cheering crowds, it made a tremendous day, which might only happen once in a lifetime. You know what Paul is saying? Saying, friends, Jesus is leading our triumph parade and I'm in the parade and I'm walking with Jesus and I'm following him. And it's as he's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to get in the parade. Jesus is leading his triumph parade throughout the whole world. And you know what he's saying? That triumph parade of Jesus wasn't making a stop in Corinth at that time. That's why I stayed in Macedonia. I'm following Jesus. Paul says, I'm sharing in the triumph of Jesus, the captain of the Lord's army, 
Paul wouldn't say it, but I'll say it. He's one of the officers, right? He's one of the officers in the Lord's army. And there it is, just glorious and resplendent. And there it is, you see the Lord's army, Jesus, on a triumphant white horse leading. And there's his army beside him and the saints of all the ages. And there's people going before him, the great worthies of all the prophets and the, the, the people of the Old Testament. And there they are in this great, and there's the, the people who have conquered over Satan. And there's the, the triumph and the whole glory. And it's just beautiful, the picture that Paul is saying. And here is Jesus leading us through, and Paul says, I'm a part of this. I want you to be a part of it. Jesus is leading us. Jesus Christ led us. It's prayed is winding its way throughout the whole Roman Empire. Friends, there's another thing I want you to consider that Paul makes a very wonderful allusion to here. Did you notice it in verse 14? Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in the place. You see, is a very real part of the triumph parade. You'd have these Roman pagan priests walking as a part of the, the parade, waving censers. You know what a censer is? It's, a, it's like a, a, a metal box with holes in it that you burn incense, and incense is smoking out of this. And Paul probably saw one of these parades once, and you know what? He, re- he remembers the smell. He says, you know what, that smell, that fragrance, that whenever fragrance in the form of incense, it was common at these Roman triumph parades. And in Paul's mind, this fragrance is like the knowledge of God, which people can smell when the triumph parade winds by. You know that no scent, no, I should say, no sense remains in the memory like scent. There's just something about that that triggers things, and there's nothing more Uh, that we remember more strongly than pleasant smells, except perhaps unpleasant smells. And Paul's saying, listen, I I just, I want my life to be this sweet-smelling perfume floating on the air, reminding me and reminding God and reminding everybody of Jesus Christ. What do people smell about your life? You know, is is it like an odor or is it like a fragrance under the Lord? I don't know if you've done much traveling. If you much traveling in Europe, they have a marvelous, marvelous public transportation system in most cities in Europe. Subways and buses and metros. But there is a odor about it all. Um, bathing habits perhaps aren't the same in your enclosed places, perhaps in hot summer weather. And uh, there's just an odor about it. And friends, you remember that. And you wonder at the same time, you know, when people see my... Christian life, what are they sensing? Is it an odor? Is it a fragrance? One commentator named Meyer says, a sweet savor of Christ. It does not consist so much in what we do, but in our manner of doing it. Not so much in our words or deeds as in an indefinable sweetness, tenderness, courtesy, unselfishness, a desire to please others to their edification. It is the breath and fragrance of a life hidden with Christ and God and deriving its aroma from fellowship with him. Wrap the habits of your soul in the sweet lavender of your soul, of your Lord's character. And Paul says, listen, that's what I want. I want people to smell the fragrance of Christ when they see me. Now he goes on, and if you notice here in verse 15, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Oh, okay, fine. To God, this is what God says. He goes, he smells Jesus about us. That's what God smells about you. Are you in Jesus Christ? That's what God smells about you. 
He smells Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, to the one, we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other, the aroma of life to life, and who is sufficient for these things? Now again, Paul has his mind kind of back in this Roman triumph parade. Think if you were marching in that Roman triumph parade and you smelled that incense and it made such an impression on you. I mean, I'm convinced that Paul must have witnessed one of these at some time or another. Though they were rare, he must have witnessed one, and he remembered the smell of the incense. Now, would that smell of incense make you feel good or bad? Well, it depends where you are in the parade, my friends. If you're a Roman soldier marching in the parade, there's nothing you ever smelled sweeter than the fragrance from that Roman triumph parade. But let's say you're one of the prisoners of war in chains on your way to your execution, then you never smelled anything as troubling in the world as the fragrance from that Roman triumph parade. You see, my friends, in the same way, the message of the gospel is a message of life to some, and it's a message of condemnation to those who reject it. Friends, people who are not saved are not saved not only because they don't believe the gospel, but they're also condemned because they reject the gospel. The gospel becomes their condemnation because it was their opportunity to be saved, but they rejected it. So Paul goes on to say, and he says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You know, when Paul thinks of this great triumph parade and, and the glory of God's work as it winds its way throughout the world, he just calls back and he says, who's sufficient for these things? When he thinks of the greatness of God's plan, he wonders, who, who is worthy? Who's sufficient to play a role in it? Paul says, I'm not worthy to be a part of this parade. I'm not worthy to be in it. But then again, he says, ah, I'm going to do it. Friends, I want you to understand that Paul said, I'm not sufficient, I don't feel sufficient, but I am going to do it. But at the same time, look at verse 17. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. That's a very interesting word there he uses for peddling. It doesn't have idea, so much the idea of selling the word of God, though that word is kind of in there. But the idea behind that word for peddling is more so diluting or adulterating. It was used especially of a wine seller who would water down the wine for more profit. You know what Paul said? He said, I'm not watering down the gospel. Now notice this. This is what he says in verse 17. For we are not, as so many, watering down the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God. That word sincerity, the Greek word actually means pure or transparent. It shows something that you can hold up to the light and see through it. And Paul says, listen, my message, my ministry, it doesn't have a hidden agenda. It doesn't have hidden motives. Instead, Paul says, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You know what made Paul a good minister of the gospel? You know what made him a faithful preacher? Was he was well aware that his first audience was always God. That's who he spoke to. 
And if there's any one thing that I can encourage any teacher or preacher of the gospel with, I would say, remember, that's who your audience is. Now, I always believe that a preacher and a teacher should cater to his audience. He should have first in his mind, what does my audience want to hear? What can I say that will please my audience? How can I make my audience uh, be favorable towards what I'm saying? I think a speaker should always have that first in mind. But a minister of the gospel should say, God is my audience. What will please him? What will honor him? hard for me to even talk about this trend in the church today of polling the audience, I mean the human audience, saying, what do you want to hear? How do you want to hear it? And we'll package it just in a way that you want it. Friends, that's peddling the word of God. Paul says he wouldn't do it. He would not do it. No, instead, he says, we speak in the sight of God. God is my audience, and I'm going to speak and teach and preach in a way that glorifies him. Now, you know, that same philosophy should manage everything in our life. What did Paul say in another one of his letters? Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it heartily as unto the Lord. You're in school, you're a student. Be a student unto the Lord. You're working at your job. You're not working for the boss. Work unto the Lord. You're doing uh, the job of managing a household and raising children. Do it as unto the Lord. You see what a revolution that can make in the way you do things. And that's what made Paul a good teacher. And that's what made us faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Now, as we pick it up next week in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is going to talk more and more about his ministry. But friends... I simply want to leave you with this question. Are you marching in that parade? Are you part of that triumph procession? You want to be part of it, don't you? I mean, have you ever seen a big parade on the TV or in person? You've been strongly tempted on the side saying, you know what, this parade's neat to watch. I wish I was in it. God doesn't want you on the sidelines of that parade, my friends. He wants you in it. He wants you part of Jesus Christ's triumph procession. And he'll lead you in it if you'll apply to him for that place in it. Let's come before the Lord and open up our hearts before him and ask him to lead us wherever he wants in his triumph procession. Father, we thank you now this evening for your goodness, for your glory. And we just can't get that image out of our mind, Lord, of Jesus Christ leading that triumph parade. We're so captivated by it, Lord, and we want to be part of it. We want to be part of your people throughout all ages. Marching through, Lord, what you have for us and being led by you. Help us, Lord, to do it and help us to truly follow you, seeking to please you. It's not that we don't care about pleasing man, Lord. It's just that it's so secondary to pleasing you. Help us, Lord, to glorify you in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.